Welcome, welcome to this lecture. We move forward in the creed. We move forward in the Christian message. We continue today talking about Jesus. We will continue next week also talking about Jesus. And we will talk about Jesus the week after that. Because it's that important and the entire Bible is about Jesus for Christians. The New Testament is a commentary on Jesus. A witness to what Jesus did and said. And a witness to the resurrection. Okay. The materials that we're talking about today, even though they're not the Gospels directly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's still that witness. In fact, as one of our panelists mentioned, Dr. Gupta on Friday, it's possible that the earliest book in the New Testament is the book of 1 Thessalonians, maybe even written in the 40s, late 40s AD. Most scholars of the Gospels think that the Gospels were written between 70 and 100 AD or so. It's a guess, though. One embarrassing thing about biblical scholarship, just off the point here, but about biblical scholarship, biblical scholars know weirdly little about the exact circumstances of the composition of biblical books. You'd think, like, we'd have it all figured out, or, or biblical books would say, like, there'd be a paragraph at the end that would just be like, by the way, authored by Casey Jones in the year 14 BC, and, uh, you know, there's nothing like that. The closest you get to that is actually in Luke and Acts, Acts being one of the books we're going to talk about today, where the author actually has a little prologue where they say, hey, most excellent, hey, that's how they start the book, actually, hey, most excellent Theophilus, I'm writing these things for this reason, and so on, so that, but it's still pretty, it's pretty spare and minimum. At the very least, Luke's prologue of the Gospel of Luke tells us that um, there were other, there were a lot of accounts of Jesus floating around in this early context, and that this author wanted to kind of collect them and make them organized in a way that would be helpful for the, for the audience. So we know that. I mean, that's precious little in a sense. You'd like to know a lot more, I'm sure, if you care about history and authorship and stuff like that, as I do. The book of Acts apparently is part of a two-part work that Luke, this guy Luke, also wrote to go along with Luke that tells the story of Jesus all the way through the early church. So if after this class, if you're kind of like, you know, it's the summer, you're like, oh, I missed that class. I just want to read some Bible. What should I do? Reading Luke and Acts together as like one full unit gives you a whole story all the way through Jesus, the life, death, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then all the way through Jesus' ascension into heaven, which was, is going to be one of our readings for this week in Acts, all the way through the story of the early church, all the way up to the book of Acts takes us up to the year 64 AD, which is right on the eve of what in tradition at least is the Apostle Paul's martyrdom in Rome. Um, the book of Acts does not narrate this martyrdom, though, this killing of Paul. And thus, it kind of preserves Paul, Paul's life as this just like wonderful, victorious thing. You know, it, uh, probably the readers and the author knew that Paul had been killed for being a missionary, but didn't write about it and just left it at him at the end in prison but preaching. So it's kind of like a, you know, I don't know if you've seen a movie like this of a character that you know dies, but the movie kind of cuts out at like an awesome moment right before they die so that you kind of, you know what happens. And that's, Acts seems to have been written like that in light of Paul's death, but not actually narrating it um, for the audience. So anyway, reading Luke-Acts is, is pretty good. Okay, um, we'll, get, we'll get to some more of this timeline stuff um, in a minute, but I, before we forget to, to say the creed for today, let's get to our part of the creed. We go back to an I believe statement. The creed has several I believe statements, right? It starts off, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then you have an I believe in Jesus that gets resumed really quickly. And then a lot of the middle of the creed like that is about Jesus, just things about Jesus. But we're going to resume this week with a phrase, again, an I believe phrase. So that, that, believe, that believe phrase is something that's going to stick with you. It's going to haunt you as a Christian. What does it mean to believe? It haunts the creed. Keep bringing it up. I believe, I believe, I believe. Okay. The phrase for today, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. We're going to unpack some of these phrases. And from last week, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. You ready? Should we give it a try? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Wow, this is getting long. We're doing it. Let me take a few minutes here at the top to talk about some of the re- our recent phrases from the creed because they're not always reflected in the Bible and we haven't really unpacked them in some ways. I hope our reading in Justo Gonzalez's book, um, The Apostles' Creed for Today, is going to help unpack these even more and that's why I've assigned it to you. But having said that, I just want to take a minute just here in person to just, I don't know, just talk a little bit about a couple of these. Let's back up actually to he descended to the dead because that's kind of a cryptic phrase. I mean, we know what it's like to die or to suffer and all that, but w- what does that mean he descended to the dead? There's a reference in the book of of 1 Peter 3.19, just kind of a a very obscure reference. It's very cryptic that refers to Jesus dying and preaching to, quote, spirits in prison. Spirits in prison. And biblical scholars can debate and do debate long about that, and you can read it. It doesn't sound like the kind of passage which for Christians is, like, deeply essential to our salvation and knowledge of God. And yet it actually makes its way into the creed. What does it mean? On the one hand, the phrase in the creed, descended to the dead, could just be a generic way to say that Jesus died, like a kind of poetic, full way to say he really died, he was really buried, it really happened. Okay. So you have that, that aspect to it. Others have, have kind of taken that crypticness uh, of 1 Peter 3.19, Jesus preached to spirits in prison after dying. What the heck is that supposed to mean? That Jesus literally had to descend into hell or some idea of hell in order either to experience like the fullest punishment that God could mete out in this idea, which is, I think you had some of this in your textbook reading for this week, or you will next week, the idea that Jesus is in some sense a sacrifice, that Jesus' death in some way does something in God's economy, in God's system of salvation on earth that God needed to happen. And like a sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, in that sacrificial system, like in Leviticus, or like Isaac walking up with his father Abraham to the hill, that somehow this is something that God had asked for and Jesus had been faithful to give it. And Jesus went even beyond Abraham and Isaac and the whole scenario and did it. And that somehow did something. Okay, we'll come back to that notion. So it could could go all the way to some kind of literal descent into hell. And even some forms of the creed actually say he descended into hell instead of he descended to the dead. The form we're saying of the creed is is kind of one version that just says more generically maybe he descended to the dead. Um, At any rate, um, you know, to me as a Christian personally, like when I hear this phrase, it, 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 it sounds like a poetic way of referring to the fact that Jesus died. But it seems to go beyond that because the creed already says that he died. So why have to say he descended to the dead? This notion of descent for Jesus, descent, ascent, going this way, descent, going this way, is really important to the Christian message. In fact, in the book of Mark, this was, this, was, this was a key moment. I think it was probably part of the readings that I had assigned to you. At one point, the disciples are trying to take children and like shove them out of the way, like get these stupid kids out of here. 
you know, and kids can be like that. I spent the weekend around a lot of kids and you just want to be like, get out of my face, kid. You know, I'm just like, let's do the real stuff here. Not time for you. But Jesus in these stunning moments says, no, 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 no. Unless you somehow become like a child. How can you become like a child? We're adults. We have to live our lives. We've talked about that in this class. You know, difficult things are going to happen in life. You're going to need an adult faith to talk about adult things. And that's true. And yet there's this other paradoxical sense in which Jesus says, no, no, no. Unless you're actually approaching me like one of these kids, you, you can't even do it at all, right? So, you know, ascent, yes, let's get lofty, let's get thoughtful, let's be adults. Descent, let's go down, let's become like kids. Life, yes, resurrection, you want to live. No, but descent, descent comes first, going down. We're going to look at a passage in a little bit from the book of Philippians chapter 2. I've assigned it to you for this week, in which this idea of descent, of going down, becomes so central to the Christian message and what early Christians thought about Jesus. In one of the earliest rituals, baptism, what do you do in baptism? You're held. I mean, there are different ways to do baptism, but in one sense, if you do the kind of traditional going under the water, you go down, right? You go down under a thing, and then you come up. So the notion descended to the dead, I think, is at the very least, at the, at its most broad, in its most broadest sense, a nod to that, no, that important notion of Christian descent. In Christianity, not just literally, physically, your body, this is true, but in Christianity, spiritually, you must die. There's a part of you that must go away and has to die, and then a new thing rises up. How that works is complicated and mystical, but it's a key component of Jesus' teaching and life and message. On the third day, he rose again. We'll come back to this next week. The notion, though, that Jesus is alive is central to Christian proclamation. That's really important. We'll come back to that next week. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, now we've got a Father. We've got Jesus is not only alive, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now you have some sense that Jesus is related to a Father with a capital F. Now we're back to this Trinity idea. I put a complex word um, up on the board just to try to illustrate what Christians have said. By the way, you're going to all have to take a class called Religion 300, which is going to help you narrate the history of the church even after the Bible and is going to go way deeper into this. I'm just giving you a preview just for fun by way of the creed. Um, Christians eventually came up with this, this word, this Greek word, homoousios. You want to say it? Homoousios. Homoousios. Homoousios means essence, something like that. The Christian proclamation is that the Trinity is one essence, that God is one homosios, but that is also existing in three persons. So in the sense that a person is like the who and an essence is like the what, I you know, it's, it's hard to say, admittedly, how you can, you know, can you really, do you think for yourself you can separate the who you are from the what you are? Maybe you're like, yeah, my body is the what that I am, but the who that I am is like some other mystical thing. But then all your thoughts and your memories are actually a what, too. They're in your brain, and there's chemicals. And so I admit that I don't, don't totally get this. But you're going to see this, this language used. God in three persons. So the idea that you, God can be three persons, it's not a number in terms of God's whatness, okay, or in terms of God's essence, in terms of God's homoousios, that's one. God is one. So Christians are not polytheists then in that sense. But the early church after the Bible did a lot of philosophical and theological wrangling, to be clear, and I think you'll learn about this in your further studies, to try to explain to themselves and to the world how they were not polytheists, how worshiping Jesus, how you could worship Jesus as God, as the panel discussed. It's kind of odd, like depends what you mean by God and divine, because Jesus is like a weird God, a God who's not triumphant in a sense, 
a God who dies? How can that be a God who, how can you have a God who dies, you know? So this is an upside down kingdom of some sort. Um, one Trinity, one God expressed in three persons, okay? This is the language that the church would come to use. So in the, in the phrase, at the right hand of the Father, you get some, another hint of the Trinity here. And he will come to judge the living and the dead, will come, the notion that Jesus is going to return. But that even now, even in the present world, Jesus is somehow a judge, that Jesus is judging. If he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that's an important like judicial position. If God is the judge and Jesus is up there and Jesus is God and Jesus is seated in this judge's position, we answer, Christians answer to Jesus. Jesus ultimately judges us. Now, for today, I believe in the Holy Spirit, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. Note, and by the way, this is a Bible class, right? Bible 100. Note that the, note that the Trinity is not the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible, right? Like the Bible is not actually part of the Trinity. Christians do not believe that the Bible is God. The Bible's not like God's own self. The Bible is a, is a, is a human writing that's inspired by God and is God's word and formal official teaching communication for the church. Most Christian groups agree on that basic core. And then there are other things that you could say too. But the Bible is not God. Christians don't worship a book, okay? So don't, don't get confused about that. Christians don't worship a book. That would be like bibliolatry, like idolatry of a book. We don't do that, okay? Um, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And you'll, there'll be all kinds of debates that Christians will have, like, where does the Spirit come from? Does the Spirit come from Jesus? Does it come from the Father and the Son? And then there was a debate about, like, no, the Holy Spirit just proceeds from the Son, not the Father and the Son, um, which then seemed to subordinate the Holy Spirit even lower, like a kind of third-class member of the Trinity or something like that, um, which Christians don't believe. The homoousios is one, and the three persons are one in a kind of perfect, beautiful community with each other eternally. And the Holy Spirit is one person in this group. The Holy Catholic Church. Um, that phrase Catholic, I know trips people up sometimes. I was once in a situation where people were saying the creed a couple of years ago, like a prayer situation. And there was one person who, who got very upset about that part of the creed and like refused to actually recite it because they said, I'm not a Catholic and I don't believe in the Holy Catholic Church. What are you talking about? Okay, in the creed, that's not the word Catholic that's being used. The Roman Catholic Church, as in the church group with like a billion members that has a pope and all that stuff. Like if you're a Catholic, you totally know that you're a Catholic. If you're not a Catholic, don't worry. Like you would definitely know if you were a Catholic, okay? So that Catholic is like capital C Catholic. In the creed, it's lower, lowercase Catholic. Catholicus, I think in Latin, meaning universal. In other words, the creed is saying that you believe that there is one universal body of believers on earth. That's what, that's what you're reciting when you recite that one universal and holy church. One set of, and here's the next phrase then, and maybe one of the most, I don't know, maybe a phrase that's maybe newer to you than some of the other phrases. One communion of saints. What the heck is a communion of saints? That's a, that's a bizarre term. The communion of saints is like this. Um, every Christian that's ever lived, and you, and every Christian that will live, you are part of a body with them. Like you're part of a family, but really the metaphor and drawn from Paul's letters. I mean, this kind of stuff appears in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're part of a body. Like everyone is a Christian. You have to picture us, like picture the outline of a body and we're like we're all jumbled in there, like the body parts all together. And then the head of that body is Jesus. 
So that's the metaphor. It's a body metaphor. Jesus is the head, and we're like the arms and the fingers and the toes and the butt and the shins and all the whole rest of the body. You know, that's us. And we're all together. And it means that you're not only in communion with everyone that you worship with on Sunday in your own church, you're also in communion with those people down the street that maybe worship a little bit different from you, but worship Jesus as Lord in a core Christian way. You're in a communion of saints with them. And, you know, if you're a Catholic, you're in a communion of saints with all kinds of others. Of course, different church groups have different kind of beliefs about whether they really do, like which other groups really are Christians. But let's just say the phrase communion of saints is a kind of code word for the whole group of people that are Christians. You belong to that. And, you know, there's even been some technical language about this. Like, for instance, Catholics use the language of the church militant, the church penitent, and the church triumphant. I put penitent in parentheses here because at least all Christians, even Protestant, that is non-Catholic Christians, believe in the church militant and triumphant. The church militant are the Christians who are battling it out today in, real, in life, living. You're trying to walk the walk. The walk. You're, you're, you're striving to know what it means to believe. You're following Jesus. You're, you're in the battle. So it's a battle metaphor, okay? You're, you're in the fight. You are the church militant. But there's also the church triumphant, the church that has won the battle and is with the Lord in heaven. And in at least Catholic thinking, and actually in early Protestant thinking, and the thinking of a lot of Christians today, although this might not have played a role in a, in a lot of the churches that you all went to, the idea is that, in fact, the church triumphant has a role in encouraging or even praying for the church militant. That the church triumphant is still alive. They're still Christians. You don't stop being a Christian when you go to heaven, you know. You don't stop having a body, which we're going to find out next week in core Christian theology. You still you get to keep your body. Your body's coming with you. And you still get to pray. You still, get to, you still get to have communion with God, and maybe there's some knowledge of those on earth. You know? so this, and in fact, early Protestants under Martin Luther actually practiced this belief as well, the idea that the church triumphant had a role in praying for the church militant. Catholics have a different one here that not everyone agrees on, the idea of church penitent, the idea that there are people who have died, but they're not fully with God yet. They're just kind of like not ready. They're not fully there. This is the idea of purgatory. Maybe you've heard of this even if you're not a Catholic and that somehow even the church militant can help the church penitent do their, penance, do their penance and make their way to God. We don't need to get into all that. I just wanted to mention this idea. When we talk about communion of the saints, we're typically talking about these kinds of ideas. But most basically, apart from all that, however interesting or not interesting that is to you, I don't know. But the idea is that when you're part of the church, you are part of a fuller body than just that you see in your building or in your family. And not just, not just now. You're part of a lineage of people who have lived throughout time in the past, who have done this thing, and even you're part of a story that's going to continue on in the future, continue on after you die. Okay? The communion of saints. You're part of a bigger group. Christians proclaim this through the creed. Speaking of the communion of believers, okay, who, what were the earliest Christians like, the earliest followers of Jesus after the resurrection? Where were they? And how did this tiny movement become what it is today? That's the question we want to tackle here today. Those are big questions. We can't fully tackle them, but we can try. Okay, a timeline. Let's do some writing of dates. Let's, let's review some dates. We know our dates from the past. Keep those dates going. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the temple, David, the split of the kingdoms, all that stuff. We'll add here. Little C means circa. Circa means about. 330 BC, we have Greece, the Greeks, and the period of Hellenization. Alexander the Great comes in, conquers the Near Eastern world, takes it over from the Persian Empire, and you have the Greeks. The Greeks really rule in, in Israel-Palestine until about 165 
BC, and then it kind of falls apart. That's when that Maccabean period I mentioned kind of comes in. We didn't talk a whole lot about that, so I'm not putting that date up there. Around the year 60 BC, the Romans march in. The Roman general Pompey comes into town and claims the territory for Rome, and it becomes a Roman province for many hundreds of years, as long as the Roman Empire lasts until the 300s or the 400s or something like that. But for our purposes, 60 is when that begins. Jesus is maybe born between 6 and 4 BC. Sorry, I didn't write the C there, but that's... That's a C, okay? Probably. It's hard to get an exact date on it. Jesus is not born in the year zero, okay? Um, there were some calcular, uh, calendar calculations, which I think had maybe tried to make it that way, but then it ended up in the system that was created. Jesus really wasn't actually born in the year zero anyway. But we measure our time that way in the calendar that we have from the year zero, like B.C., before Christ, A.D., in Latin, in the year of our Lord. That's where we get our years from, okay? Jesus maybe dies around the year 30. Let's just say 30 because it's a round number. We don't really know. Okay. And then back to, as I mentioned earlier, some of the earliest New Testament writings that we have are these letters written to specific Christian communities living in different places. All of those places like Philippians, there's a city called Philippi or a place called Philippi. Corinthians, Corinth, the province. Okay. Romans, Rome, like the city of Rome. Galatians, Galatia. It's a province. These are all places and cities in the Mediterranean world where early Christianity flourished. And these letters were letters that were written to those places. This is the Pauline corpus. You'll see in your textbook reading for this week, too, that scholars have heavy, hot and heavy debate about which of the letters Paul actually wrote, as opposed to some of them that might have been written in Paul's name later. It's a debate that takes us beyond what I think we can accomplish here, but I mention it. Um, between 70 and 100, the Gospels are written. Huge debate about that. Debates about everything. Some people think that some of the Gospels were even written after 100. They can't be written too much after 100 because we actually start to see quotes from the Gospels from early Christian leaders pretty soon after the year 100. So they were being used and considered in some kind of way at that point. Paul's letters too, by the way. Um, Clement of Rome, for example, who lives and writes like in the late 90s AD, mentions quotes from Paul's letters, mentions quotes from the Gospels, and it's like, where is he getting this stuff if these things didn't exist in some written form for him? Okay. So when we're getting to the year 100, we're starting to think about like, oh my gosh, like a Bible is kind of coming together here uh, in some way, something like a New Testament. However, a date I didn't put up here, the year 364 AD, that's the first official Christian list that we have of the Christian canon. Do we remember the word canon from way early on? That's the first full list of a, something like the contents of a Christian Bible. So late! I know, you wanted the canon to be together earlier. And back to my point about the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Christians were thriving and living and doing their thing without a Bible for centuries. You know, without Bibles that were fully bound and in book form and with the contents fully settled. You know? So the Bible was, has not been eternal in that sense. It's a product of history. It comes about through actions of the church and through communities that treasured it and that collected it. And that, Christians believe, God endorses as God's word. It was written by the Holy Spirit, okay? But it comes about in time. I also had this, this date here, 70 AD. We switch from BC to AD, by the way, at this point. I didn't make that clear in the timeline, but these are all AD, 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 okay? 70 AD, we have the destruction of the second temple by the Romans. Remember the destruction of the first temple, 586, the Babylonians? The second temple also gets destroyed. Horrible, horrible event. Many, many Jews are killed by the Romans. There's a rebellion. Remember I mentioned this history of rebellions 
and Jesus even interacts with this. The panelists last Friday mentioned like, why is Jesus always like, when people are about to proclaim him the Messiah, he's like, shh, don't tell anyone, <laughs> okay? There's this history of Rome really coming down hard on claimants to you know, the Jewish kingship or messianic uh, rebellion leaders and things like that. So Jesus navigates that in a crafty way in the gospels. But there was a rebellion around the year 70 AD, um, the temple was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed between the year 70 AD and another rebellion that happened in the 100s later. They tried it one more time and it was defeated very badly. This is a so-called Bar Kokhba rebellion around, I think, 135 AD. One more shot at getting this thing going. And there's no more temple. I mean, wh where's the third temple? Okay, well, for Christians, in a sense, like in the book of Revelation, the third temple is in heaven. It's a heavenly temple, or in the book of Ezekiel, back, you know, when you read that, there's almost like a cosmic temple at the end of the book, okay? Um, the site where the temple is now, there's a very important Islamic holy site. It's not a mosque. Um, I believe it's a shrine on the exact site and then a mosque right nearby. The politics of Israel and that site and so on are probably, as you can guess, very complicated. Doesn't seem to be anywhere near the rebuilding of a third temple on that site. I would bet the farm that that won't happen ever or in our lifetimes, um, but... It's just like one of those political things. So for Christians and, and, and Jews kind of, to say Jews gave up on the temple, like what happened to the temple idea? Didn't they have to do sacrifices and so on? Yes, but in the aftermath of this, Jewish authorities declared that this was, you know, God's way of saying we're done with the literal sacrifice system. But this takes us into Judaism in ways that are complex as well. But no, there was no sacrifice system then anymore after that for Jews. Christians abandoned the sacrifice system mostly, although did Christian, did Jews who were also Christians, as many of the earliest Christians were, did they still continue it at the temple? That's a good question. Probably a lot of them did. But these writings of Paul that we're going to look at very much delve into this issue of what does it take to be an early Christian? Did you have to still be a Jew? Or if you were a Jew and you became a Christian, was it just kind of like adding Jesus to the things you already believed, but then you kind of just kept doing your thing as a Jew? Or is it an entirely different life? And what if it is the case that you become a Christian and you are not a Jew? Strange thought, right? Maybe some of you have a Jewish heritage or something like that. Probably many of us do not, though. We are what the New Testament calls Gentiles. Have you heard this word before? I should write it on the board. Gentile with a G. That is to say a non-Jew. How much of this Jewish law and ritual and custom do you have to do? I mean, mostly the code word here is the word circumcision. Circumcision, like for males. Abraham was required to do circumcision. It seemed to be an eternal ordinance that all, all the followers there in Israel's wake would have to do. So the question becomes, do you have to get circumcised? And not just circumcised. It's not just like cut this piece of skin off of your penis as a baby or older and you will then be fine. But it's a code word for like a bigger set of ritual observances. Remember the food thing, clean and unclean foods, and just a lot of other things too for what it meant to be a Jew, both culturally and just literally from the Old Testament. What are the early Christians going to do? How are they going to decide this? Well, let's get into this story. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. We'll do some reading here. Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, so this is the author like just coming out to the reader. You get very little of this in the Bible. It's so fascinating. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven and da-da-da-da-da. Okay. At one point, verse 4, Jesus says, Do not leave Jerusalem, my followers. 
I added the words my followers there because he's talking to his followers. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, that is John the Baptist, not the author of the book of John, a different John. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here we get this Holy Spirit idea. They gathered around and they're like, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Do you hear that messianic question of the kingdom there? They're still, Jesus has died and is resurrected and they're still like, okay, is it go time on this thing with the Romans and the establishment? Jesus said, verse seven, it is not for you to know the times and the dates the father has set by his own authority. So, no. (laughs) He says basically, you don't get to know. But, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Now we're back to that huge language back from the book of Genesis to Abraham. You will be blessed, you and your descendants, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now Jesus is using the same language. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And now is a terrifying and wonderful moment in our story. Jesus' followers, are, they now have to go out in the world and do this thing. They have to like be Jesus on earth, be empowered from this Holy Spirit, do the things that Jesus did, and preach and say the things that Jesus said. In the book of Acts, as you're going to see in your reading for this week, which I'm trying to prepare you for with these brief, pithy remarks, is the book in which, which, in which is narrated that story. And you're going to see all about this. Really, the first four chapters of Acts are really good for kind of getting into what this earliest Christian community was like. This spirit does come down in a dramatic way, and people begin speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues, as you might say. And you get another callback to the book of Genesis, namely to the Tower of Babel story. The Tower of Babel was a story where everyone spoke one language, but God came down, saw arrogance there, and scattered their languages so people couldn't understand each other. Now in this moment, this spirit comes down, empowers these people, these disciples, and in a place where many different languages were spoken, they begin just like speaking in languages that are not their own, but the people actually understand the languages. So you get a little callback there. Remember this idea of echoes that we've talked about in the Bible? This echoes outward and outward and outward. You get an echo back to the Tower of Babel. Now what was disunity and confusion, now God has brought back into communion and community and understanding. People understand each other, even speaking languages that are not their own. Okay. What is this early Christian community like? They pray. They sing songs together. They meet, apparently, in houses. Um, at the end of Acts chapter 4, there's this little, um, little bit that I always think is so fun just to think about. I mean, you know, what would it be like if this was your church? This is the church in Acts. This is Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place, the place where they all were meeting was shaken, and they, are all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The apostles, the word apostle comes from a Greek word, which means to send out. So the apostles are those, I'll write that on the board, apostle. 
The apostles are Jesus's earliest core followers who go out and kind of like missionaries found churches and spread the word of Jesus' teachings and message and proclaim his resurrection. Proclaim that, as the Gospels did, that Jesus is Lord. I mean, what a community, right? It's like they're living in this little, like, communist utopia together, like, sharing all their possessions and so on. Kind of like a family. Um, No needy persons among them. It's like a perfect system. I mean, does your church look like that? Mine mine does not quite look like the utopia of, of the book of Acts. But it's an amazing ideal to think about, a world in which possessions don't matter, a world in which prayer and one's unity within the church is completely bound in love and unity together. Something to think about, right? So that's the way that the book of Acts presents this early community. So much more that you'll read about too. Let me move on to talk about the writings of Paul. The writings of Paul. Um, Sometimes Paul's letters, and Paul's letters, by the way, if you have a Bible and you go to the to the table of contents. I'm flipping to my table of contents now. You can see all these letters. Um, Paul's a writer of a a lot of the books. He writes more books than anyone else writes, and we can be pretty sure that he's the author of at least a lot of them. Um, But a lot of them are really short. Some of them are pretty short, so they're not as long as some of the books we've been reading. Romans is the longest one. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, first Timothy, second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's quite a list. Like that's, those are all the, the, at least the letters attributed to Paul. Okay. The genre, the literary style of the letter in Greco-Roman antiquity is uh, different from Paul's letters. In fact, most of the letters that we have from the ancient Greco-Roman world are much, 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 much shorter than the letters that we find in the Bible. So an average letter in the Greco-Roman world would have been like, Hello, this is me, Brian, writing to you, Robert. Hope you're well. Hope your family's well. Um, Did you get the wheat I sent you? I hope your kids aren't sick. I'm trying to come visit you later, and let's hope that works. I hope you get this letter. Love you. Bye. Like, that's that was an average letter length. When you read these letters, they're like, woo, like they're so long, just like chapter after chapter after chapter. There's something more than just normal letters then that Paul's just like, oh, I'm going to dash off a letter to these people. They are theological products. They are treatises that Paul probably meant very intentionally to communicate bigger ideas than just a quick communication. Perhaps with the sense already that Paul knew that they would be used in some way. Did Paul know that his letters were going to become part of the Bible, that we now know it? No, I mean, that seems almost like historically impossible that Paul had that kind of self-knowledge at the time. Christians don't need Paul to have that self-knowledge for it to be scripture, though. We just need God to have overseen the process through the community of faith that put them together, and that we do have, okay? Um, so his letters are long, and maybe there's even a little bit of a sense of, of self-awareness from Paul that he's writing something that people are using. Maybe these letters were already circulated very early and were used by communities to kind of set rules for how they would live. Um, so yes, they're letters or epistles, sometimes they're called, but not just, not just routine communication. Something is, is at stake here, okay? Let's, let's dive into one of these. I don't know. I just, this is one of my favorite passages, and it takes us to the heart, I think, of how Paul and the early church thought about Jesus. It's in the book of Philippians. And by the way, who is this guy, Paul? What are you talking about, Paul? Okay, so in your reading, you're going to see Paul is going to be introduced to you in the book of Acts for this week. He is a Jew who is like persecuting Christians. He's trying to actually kill Christians because he thinks that they're spreading a bad message, ruining Judaism. And he gets, in one of the most famous stories in all of Christianity, he is converted 
he's blinded by a light and a voice that says, you know, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And it's God. And he goes on this journey to discover and he comes to be a Christian. And then he becomes like the greatest champion of the early Christian message that Christians had. So it's a pretty amazing story. Philippians chapter 2. There's a poem there you'll see in your Bible, and I'm asking you to read that this for, for this week. Philippians um, is a relatively short book. It has some great themes in it, themes of humility. Apparently the group at Philippi was a poor group, but they were very faithful. So Paul wants to encourage them, even though they're living in poverty and they don't have much. He wants to say, hey, hang in there. You can do this. And there's a poem in chapter 2 that's sometimes referred to as the Christ hymn. And maybe, maybe it was one version of an early creed, kind of like our Apostles' Creed, but different, that early Christians would recite. Or something like when you get baptized. I don't know if, how many of you are in traditions where you've been baptized. But like there are certain things that are, are like said at the baptism and certain things that you proclaim. Some scholars think that this poem was something that early Christians would have to recite at their baptism. And that would be a kind of like a concise statement of belief. Just listen to this statement of belief, though, and listen to what it tells us about who Jesus was, which is ultimately our topic here, despite all this other stuff. In your relationships with one another, the author says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's the poem. Who, this is Jesus, being in very nature God. The translation there is disputed, but I'm just reading the NIV Bible that we have. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Other translations have something different there, but we'll just roll with this one. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you notice there in that poem the theme of descent? What does Jesus have to do? Even though he's God, Paul says, which is a stunning claim, like, how could you accept a claim like that, that a human is also God? Yes, Paul is saying he's, he's like, in the very form of himself, he's God, yet he's also a person. Here we have an idea like the incarnation we've talked about before. Even though he went down, 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 down low and became like a slave. We don't think of slavery as being something very honorable, I don't think, and I don't think they did in their society either. I mean, in America today, we look at slavery as this thing that needs to be atoned for and remembered. We talk about sex trafficking and slavery that still exists in the world today. How can we overcome it? To think that Jesus voluntarily goes that low. How low then would you have to go? How low would I have to go if I'm to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm to walk in his footsteps? And if Jesus goes that low, how low am I supposed to go? It's a challenging message, right? <laughs> We're going to continue next week. Um, and in our panel for this Friday as well, talking about these themes of descent, as well as some of Paul's other letters. And circle back to this question of Jesus' death and resurrection. What did it all really mean? Good job today. <laughs>